Let's take our Bibles and turn back to the book of Ecclesiastes. If you're not real familiar with that is, you'll find the book of Psalms and just move on back a little further and you'll find Ecclesiastes just a few books back. Chapter 1 today, as we begin a short series of about three months, we'll be going through this book together. And I trust it'll be a series that will be very helpful to you in your spiritual life. Uh, this is uh, the book that uh, is universally recognized as one of the great pieces of literature. Uh, and even in secular circles. When I went to college at the University of Virginia many years ago, I was really surprised in a, in a class that I was taking on great literature that one of the essays they had us read was Ecclesiastes. And I just, I just couldn't hardly believe that that would be one of the things that in a secular university they were having us read, but they did. And I'm sure my interpretation was different than my teachers when it was all said and done, but uh, nevertheless they had us read this wonderful book. It is a difficult book to interpret, because uh, as we'll see as we go through it, it's, uh, it's complicated in some ways, but at the same time, uh, it is has wonderful messages for us. It, up until the Reformation, it was uh, normally interpreted allegorically. So the uh, Jewish people didn't, and the early Christians just couldn't get a handle on much of this, and so they, all they allegorized it and so forth, spiritualized it, and didn't get the real meaning that God had intended for us to have. Uh, some have viewed this as a very pessimistic book, as a matter of fact, when I have assigned this book to people who are depressed or discouraged, they say, what are you trying to do to me? Are you trying to, trying to kick me over the edge or what? And, uh, but that, as we get together here with this, I, I trust that will not be the case. Others have looked, looked at the backside and said, this is like a, a handbook on how to have the good life. Uh, that's not the case necessarily either. The key to the book as we go through it, is the repetition of words and phrases found throughout this great Old Testament book. It's one of the most repetitive books that you're ever going to find in Scripture. And there are certain phrases and words that are constantly showing up. For example, God. Now you said, well, that's in the Bible, so we expect God to be there, but not necessarily. In the next book right after this one, Song of Solomon, uh, God is never mentioned by name even once. Uh, but he's mentioned 40 times in the book of Ecclesiastes. The book is saturated with God, and you can't understand the message whatsoever without understanding God's role in this book and in our lives. The second word is wisdom. Much like the book of Proverbs, it's a wisdom literature. So just an just a overview of the Old Testament. The, the Jews broke the Old Testament down into three different uh, categories, and when we followed that throughout Christianity... Uh, there is the narrative or historical section, starting with Genesis, going up through Esther. That tells us what happened, uh, for the most part, just simply giving the details and the history and, and the storylines that went, went throughout uh, the history there. Uh, then we go to the prophetic books, starting uh, over here in Isaiah and going for uh, Daniel, or Isaiah and going far, forward up to the end of the Old Testament. Those are the prophetic books. Those are messages of future events as well as just, just sermons of how people should be living and warnings about life if you don't live that way. And so that was the two main sections. There's, but there's one other section called the wisdom literature. And wisdom literature begins with Job and then we have Psalms and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and Song of Solomon, these five great books uh, that probably are the most uh, well-liked and loved by most people. Because they tell us not what happened as so much as how people processed what happened. How, what were they thinking? How were they dealing with the issues of life, good or bad? How, how were they thinking? And those five books have stood the test of time and are precious to us here today as Christians as well. Another word is vanity. We'll look at that a little closer in a moment. We find that right in the first uh, verse 2 several times. 
vanity. Vanity means uh, emptiness or meaninglessness. So uh, if uh, some of your translations might even say that instead of vanity, it's, it's meaninglessness. 39 times uh, this word is going to be found uh, in this book. As the preacher says, I, I the preacher, let me read those couple verses. The words of the preacher, the son of David, the king in Jerusalem, this is Solomon. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What, ha what advantage does a man have under, uh, in all of his work which he does under the sun. Vanity. Five times in the very first verses, very first, second verse, he brings up this issue of the emptiness, the meaninglessness of life. And then because life is empty, according to Solomon, uh, we are, we, living life is like chasing the wind. And so the phrase striving after wind is found numerous times going throughout the book. It, basically, it's an adventure in frustration. That's how Solomon is pointing it out early on. An adventure in frustration. That's what life is like. So, getting depressed yet? In my heart is the next one. Now, this is a phrase, a Hebrew word can be translated in my heart, in my mind, in my thoughts. Uh, I like the word heart. Heart is the idea of, of, of the inward person. My mind, my emotions, my will. And he constantly goes back to this issue of, in my heart I was dealing with these things. With all my heart I was dealing with these things. And we'll, we'll flesh that out as we go through. He's applying everything in his heart, everything in his being, to unraveling the mysteries of life. And then under the sun. Under the sun is found 29 times in his book. And under heaven three more times. So under heaven is a synonym for under the sun. And it is the key, I believe, to unraveling the understanding of this book. Here, here's the point. Un, when he says under the sun, he's not talking about just about life here. He's talking about life under the sun as if God did not exist. That's the key. It is if on this ball we call earth, we live here under the sun. It, God, if there is a God, is up there somewhere and he is totally disconnected from, with life under the sun. It's like there's a massive shield between us and the heavens, us and God. He's up there doing his thing. We're down there doing our things. So life under the sun. Here is what life under the sun. Here is what life is like. Here is what life would be like if God did not exist or if God was not involved with us. That is the key to understanding, I think, the whole book. What would life be like if God was not involved. Ecclesiastes will tell us what that would look like. This may come as a surprise to some of you after all I've said already, but I believe that the real point of the book is not how to be depressed and how to be, think life is meaningless, but rather it's how we can get all that is meant to give, be gotten out of life. How to enjoy life God's way. How to get the most from life. And some of you are saying that's kind of crazy after what you just read to us. I mean, after all, is that, uh, is that really what he's talking about? And as we look together at this, I think that'll be. The book shows us how meaningless and worthless life is. Almost 40 times he says it's vanity or vain and meaningless. And yet, and, and striving after the wind. And, and then he says, and, and let me back, keep on rolling with that. He says, you can work all your life to accomplish something and then you die. And that's it. Uh, and while you live here, your life is continually empty. Uh, you're striving after the wind. Uh, there must be something more, Solomon is saying, than what we are experiencing. So you try this and you try that, 
On and on you go, and yet you never seem to be finding that which gives life meaning. You're always missing somehow the point. One of the great questions of life is what is life all about? You remember that song back in the 60s, What's Life All About, Alfie? It was a movie and a song, very popular during the 60s. And you know what? The answer that they came up with is not the answer God is going to give us. In, in that song and in that movie, the answer was be kind and love one another. God has something far more intense, far more meaningful than that to offer us. Now, right in the middle of all this struggle that Solomon was having with life, right in the middle of all that, we have the book of Ecclesiastes. And in the book of Ecclesiastes, we have a book that is very relevant to us today. So let me suggest to you that if there's a book in all the Bible, especially the Old Testament, that's more relevant than Ecclesiastes, I'm not real sure what it is. Ecclesiastes has, it comes right to the heart of us desperate, frustrated, confused, deluded people in a world in which we live. And it brings us, without, without any shyness, to the place where we recognize the meaningless of life as we live it in many cases, without God. And it brings us to that point, and I don't think there's any greater evangelistic tool than the book of Ecclesiastes, because it gets us to the place of hopelessness without Christ. So the book describes for us living without the hope of the future. It's a person living for the moment. It's a person who is living without a vital connection with God. And the references here is not exclusively to unsaved people. So you might say, well, that's, it's all talking about unsaved people who don't know Christ. Well, it, it does do that. If you don't, don't know Christ, then, uh, then you've got a problem here. You're not going to be able to find the life he wants you to have. But Solomon was a believer. So remember that Solomon was the son of David. Solomon started out very well. Solomon was given supernatural wisdom by God. Uh, Solomon had it all and he lost it somewhere along the way. Why did he lose it? And, and then he spends the rest of his life trying to find it. And only at the end of the life, his life does he seem to find something. Why did he lose all that he had in the early days? Well, he lost it, who, who knows, but maybe he was, it was too easy for him, life was. Solomon had it all. Perhaps uh, he, there was too many options for him. Most people in his society had no options, really. He had many options. There was distractions. Uh, all these things that he could do distracted him. And are we not a distracted age today in so many ways? And then ultimately that led to sin. And so this author of the book of Ecclesiastes is talking about his life. We're looking at the diary of an old man. Old man who now is, is at the end of his life and he's looking back over many, many, many years and what he's tried to understand and what he has lost and found and we're looking at this deep diary of his life. And as time rolls by, he became more confused, more depressed, more pessimistic. He could find no purpose in life, no purpose in anything he tried to do. He had all the intellect that anyone could ever possibly had. He had all the resources, but nothing satisfied his life. And I think our world should be recognizing that as well. Eventually, he uh, looks at life through the lens of, uh, lens of God, and things begin to make sense. Only through the prism of God 
Does life make sense? So that's where we're going. That's a long introduction to where we're going. We needed that backdrop in order to go forward with the study of the book of Ecclesiastes. For the rest of our time this morning, I want to zero in on just two themes, two thoughts or two themes that we're going to find interlaced throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. Over and over, these two themes will pop up. And the first one is, uh, is a depressing one. It's the meaninglessness of life as found in chapter 1. The whole of chapter 1 basically says that life is meaningless. And warning, this may be a, uh, a problem for your mental health for a few moments until we unravel the second theme. But the first theme is life is meaningless. And we saw that in the first couple of verses already that, the, that we looked at. In verse 2, he says, vanity of vanity, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity, five times. I mean, I mean, what do you think he's going to talk about? Any idea? You know, five times in one verse, he says, life is meaningless, life is empty, life is vain. Five different times he does that. But what does the word vain or vanity mean? Well, uh, nor, some translations have used a different word. It's hard to get better, I think, than this word. Uh, some people might think of a vanity as a little, you know, a little desk that uh, some woman might sit at and get vain, I guess. I don't know. When my, when my sister was growing up to about in her teenage years, my mother thought she had to have a vanity. I don't know. So you remember those things? So it was a little desk. I think it was pink. And she, had to, she sat at it. She had her brushes and her fingernail polish and her, her makeup as she got older and all that stuff. And that was all this girly stuff that she had there. And it was a vanity. Me and, me and my brother made fun of her constantly, which is why she kept her door shut for about 15 years. But, uh, but nevertheless, uh, that was known as a vanity. Well, that's not what we're talking about here. When we think of vanity, sometimes we just think of vainness, proud, arrogance. Uh, but the word itself, and this is the key, the word itself means a vapor or a breath. So soon, when the weather gets a little colder, we're going to go outside and we're going to breathe. Hopefully we'll breathe. And when we breathe, we'll see our breath. And it will, it will be there and then it'll go away. Maybe as a small child might see that for, for the first times in their life. They chase after it, but they can't keep it. They can't contain it. It goes away. It's like a breath. It's gone. And that's what the word vain here means. It means it's transitory. It's fleeting. And he's saying that, he's speaking of the transitory nature of life. And he's saying this, what profit is there? What profit is there in anything in life? What profit is there in education? So let's, let's look at some of the things he says in chapter 1 here. Verse 13, what profit is there in knowing anything? He says in verse 13, I set my mind to seek and explore by wisdom concerning all that has been done under heaven. It's a grievous task which God has given the sons of men to be afflicted with. Drop down to verse 16. And I said to myself, Behold, I have magnified and increased wisdom more than all who were before me in Jerusalem. And my mind has observed a wealth of wisdom and knowledge. I set my mind to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. And I realized this is also striving after the wind. Because in such much wisdom there is much grief. And increased knowledge results in increased pain. He said, In all my education and all my wisdom and all my study, the end result is more misery. Well, education must not do the trick. So let's try to go over to chapter 2. How about, how about owning stuff and hard work? 
Verse 4, he says this of chapter 2, I enlarged my works, I built houses for myself, I planted vineyards for myself, and we'll look at that more next week. Look at his, at his end result, though, verse 11, thus, thus I considered all my activity which my hands had done, and the labor which I had exerted, and behold, all was vanity and striving after wind, and there is no profit under the sun. All the things I did, all the things I built, all the things I accumulated, there's no, no advantage under the sun, no profit under the sun. Later on, he'll talk about the idea of maybe advancing up the ladder of life, having more responsibilities and, and uh, more achievement. But he said, the more I got, the more responsibilities I got, the harder it got, the more people I had to manage, the more frustrating it became. That wasn't the solution to his issues. And then what about raising a family? You know, Solomon could look around, you and I could look around. We say, here are these little ones that God has given me to raise. And yet as I raise them, am I simply going to raise them to have the same struggles I have? And, and have a life that's empty, just like I have? And so there's no answer there to. How do you handle these feelings? What, what is our reaction to these things? Well, these examples, if they haven't made you depressed yet, maybe the next one will. Because in verses 3 to 18, he talks about the monotony of life. This is a simple monotony of life. And he says in verse 3, What advantage does a man have in all of his work which he does under the sun? In all the things I'm going to do, what advantage is there? And then he turns to nature in, in verses 4 to the rest of the, of the book, a chapter, talking about what nature provides. And maybe, maybe there's hope in nature. Maybe we get back to the simplicity of, of life in nature. And, uh, and not chase after all these other things that don't bring satisfaction. Maybe we could do that. But he didn't find much help there either. You might remember that Henry David Thoreau is sort of the captain of get back to nature simplicity thing. He wrote a book in 1854 called Walden. Some of you have read that book. I've read it several times. Uh, I've, I've been to his place there, Walton Pond, and saw what's supposed to be his, was his cabin. And I, when we were there, we saw people coming from all over the world, they claim, to swim in Walton's Pond hoping to catch some of the spirit of Henry David Thoreau. Doesn't work very well, but they're out there swimming anyway. Uh, his suggestion and his, his uh, philosophy was simplify, simplify, simplify. You were too busy to enjoy life. Slow down and enjoy life. And that is, what, that is basically what he taught people to do. He said, we're, we, we move too fast. Uh, the trains are going too fast. You know, you get in a train, it went 30 miles per hour. You know, can imagine, ooh, that's fast back in those days. But when you got to the end of the ride, you had the same problems you had when you got on. Uh, it didn't help the cause. Well, so he didn't find peace in nature. He tried it, and neither did Solomon. Uh, look at what Solomon has to say about this. He starts with uh, verse 4. He says, verse 4, a generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. He said, uh, 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 as far as people are concerned, there's people being born, just like we had a brand new birth in our church this week, and there are people passing away, and these generations just keep rolling on, one generation after the other, just keep on rolling, but nothing changes. And then he, said, he goes to nature itself, and look at, look at verse 4 or verse 5 concerning the sun. Also the sun rises and the sun sets 
and hastening to its place, it rises there again. Yeah, the sun is wonderful, it's amazing, but it just kind of does the same thing over and over. And how about the wind? Uh, blowing towards the south and turning towards the north, the wind continues swirling along, and its circular courses, the wind returns. The wind, who can control the wind? Uh, obviously, Florida can't. If they could, they would have, right? The wind comes and goes as it chooses, and it always has. And we can do nothing about it, basically, even with all of our technology today. Verse 7, all the rivers flow into the sea, yet the sea is not full. To the place where it flows, rivers will flow, and there they will flow again. The rivers are just constantly flowing. The oceans are there. The oceans don't fill up. It just keeps on going. That's life. And he, he looks at the monotony of all the things that continue to happen over and over and over. And here is his commentary in verse 8. He said, all things are wearisome. Man is not able to tell it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing and the ear is not filled with hearing. When I looked at it all, it just wore me out. It tired me out. And the eye, even if I look at the most beautiful things in the world, the most beautiful scenery, the most beautiful views, the eye is never satisfied. The ear, we can listen to the most wonderful music or, or messages of one kind or the other, yet our, our ears are never filled in the sense of being satisfied. That's his commentary on these things. How does Solomon then see life here? He sees it as tiresome, wearisome, and going nowhere. The Greeks had their same philosophy of this, uh, an idea. In, in one of their mythologies, you remember, there's a guy named Sisyphus who, who had offended the gods in a couple of ways. And so they do, deemed him in hell forever to push a boulder up a hill. And when he got the boulder to the top of the hill, it slid off and rolled back down to the bottom. And he was doomed for eternity to push that boulder up the hill, only to do it over and over again. And they saw that as hell. And I can understand why. And yet Solomon is saying that's the way many people live. That's the way he was living. Over and over and over, doing the same things over and over. Never satisfied. Never happy. Always looking for something else. And never finding it. That's life as he sees it. In this election year, we look back over the last year or so, and we've seen that politicians have spent billions of hours and billions of dollars trying to make this world a better place, and I don't think they're doing such a good job, do you? Um, we have talked about peace since the beginning of time almost, and yet where's that peace? We have more uh, wars going on now than ever, and we're on the verge of a, perhaps a very large war. Peace is not there. We've been fighting poverty and hunger since as far as we can remember, and there's been some progress, but people are still hungry and people are still poor. We fight diseases and we win and conquer some of those diseases only to find another one pop up that we don't understand and can't fix, as happened here recently. This keeps on going in circles. But someone says, doesn't anything new ever happen? I mean, when Solomon was around, there was no cars and there's no iPhones. What in the world do they do with their time? Somebody put a, something on Facebook yesterday. I, th I found it humorous. I seldom respond because I don't want anybody to talk to me. But, but <laughs> they put on a picture of this very stoic family of about 10 standing in line, sitting all together, just as sad as could possibly be. And the, the caption, I don't know if they meant it in fun or what, but the caption is, look, they don't have cell phones. <laughs> they weren't happy. 
I mean, I don't, maybe it had been better to have a cell phone. I don't know. But, but nevertheless, uh, we find that they weren't particularly happy. But, so, have, have things been invented? Is, is there's new technology? Well, certainly there has been. But Solomon's point is, once we get there with our car, once we get there with our cell phone, we still have the same issues. We can get in an airplane in Springfield and fly to Oregon in a few hours, where in good old days it took day, years to get there. But when we get there, we still got humanity to deal with and ourselves to deal with. Uh, we can go to our cell phones and get information and news so quickly it's, it makes your head spin. But are we any better off for having that information? Has things really changed about humanity and about this world? Solomon doesn't think so. Look at verse 9. That which has been is that which will be, and that which has been done is that which will be done. So there's nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one might say, see, this is new? Already has existed for ages which were before us. There's no remembrance of earlier things and also the later things which will occur. They will be for them no, no remembrance among those who will come still later. So he just sees the rhythm of life just going on and on, a, a ceaseless activity. Maybe you, in your own way, kind of feel the same way. You know, you, you get up in the morning, you get dressed, you go to work, you come home, you watch some TV, you go to bed, and you get up the next morning and do the same thing. That's a life of millions and millions of people over and over and over again. What do we get for all of our troubles? Well, Solomon says, I had, I had those questions, verses 12 to 18, so I dedicated my life, he says. The wisest, richest man on the planet dedicated his life to finding the answers to these kind of questions. Let's just read verses 12 to 18. I, the preacher, have been king over Jerusalem, Israel and Jerusalem, and I set my mind, so here he is, he, he's determined, he's dedicating his life to seek and explore by wisdom concerning all that has been done under heaven. It's a grievous task which God has given to the sons of men to be afflicted with. I have seen all the works which have been done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be straightened, what is lacking cannot be counted. I said to myself, Behold, I, I have magnified and increased in wisdom more than all who were before me in Jerusalem, and my mind has observed a wealth of wisdom and knowledge I set my not mind to no wisdom and to no madness and folly. And I realized this too was striving after wind. Because in much wisdom there is much grief. And increasing knowledge results in increasing pain. He says the more I studied this, the more I thought about it, the more I tried to unravel it, the more miserable I got. So why not give up, folks? Why not give up and simply live for whatever pleasures you can find in this life until you die? Why, why not just give up maybe and just, just, just stay depressed and just forget about it all? Why not do those things? Well, here's a reason. Chapter 3, verse 11. There's a verse, one line in this passage of Scripture that is profound. He said this, verse 11, chapter 3. He has made everything appropriate in its time. He has also set eternity in their heart. You should underline in three different colors that line right there. He said, eternity in your heart. Your heart has eternity in it. There's something, we're not beasts. We're not animals. The Lord has placed something in the heart of every human being in which we know this is not it. 
Life on this planet is not it. That eternity is in our hearts. That there is a connection with something beyond us. Something we cannot touch and, and explain, but is there. We know that. It's buried in the heart of every human being. In Romans chapter 1, he tells us that many people suppress that knowledge and go on and live as if God did not exist. But that does not negate the fact that that knowledge is in their hearts. You right here today, whether you're a Christian or not, you know that this can't be it. That life, there's more to life than this. There's, a, there's something beyond us, whatever that might be, and God has placed eternity in your hearts, and you can't get away from it. That's why I don't believe there's any true atheists. There's people who have claimed they are, so why are they fighting so hard to make other people like them? Why are they fighting so hard to, to continue their own views? If they don't believe there's a, God, there's a God, just forget it. But there's something in their hearts that tells them there is a God. And they want, and they, but they don't know how to reach him. And they don't know what it's all about. But Solomon, go over to chapter 8 for just a second. And Solomon kind of goes back. In verse 16, he goes back to his ways. He says... When I gave my heart to know wisdom and to see the task which had been done on, on the earth, even though one should never sleep day or night, and I saw every work of God, I concluded that, that man cannot discover the work which had been done under the sun. Even though man should seek laboriously, he will not discover. Though the wise man should say, I know, he cannot discover. And so Solomon is back to saying, I don't know what life is about. I know there's something there. Eternity is in my heart, but I don't know how to find it. And I can work at it night and day with the greatest mind ever given to a human being, and I can't get there. I can't unravel it. And so the first theme is pretty depressing, isn't it? And so if we stop there, I don't know what would happen to you. So we're not going to stop there. We're going to jump ahead a little bit to the end of chapter 2 and look at the second theme. And here it is. Having said all that he said... The second theme lays throughout the book and will ultimately be brought to a conclusion is this. Life is meant to be enjoyed. Life is meant to be enjoyed if we live life God's way. Here's three questions he's going to address as we move forward. Does life have any real purpose? Secondly, is there something more than just existing until we die? Thirdly, is there something more that we should be getting out of life? And the answer to all three of those questions is a profound yes by Solomon and the Holy Spirit who gives this book to us. Time and again, the preacher, he calls himself a preacher about six times, will come back to the same conclusion. Not that life is meaningless, but that life is, now catch it, life is a gift from God meant to be enjoyed by those who love, fear, and we're going to unpack what that word fear means, and obey Him. Life is a gift from God meant to be enjoyed by those who love, fear, and obey Him. He's going to elaborate on those themes. He's going to refine them. And when he's done, we'll be able to understand the purpose of life. His conclusion will bring about a radical transformation in the life of Solomon, and in the life of all who follow the teachings that found 
in this book. Here in these verses in chapter 2, toward the end of chapter 2, starting with verse 24, he says that the everyday task of life can bring meaning and satisfaction in ways that the riches and the wonders and the successes can never bring. These are gifts of God if one has a relationship with God that gives purpose. There's two keys here. Two keys to the enjoyment of life are established in these verses. Number one, the enjoyment of life is a gift from God. I've already said that, but that's what he says in verse 24. The enjoyment of life is a gift from God. Look at verse 24 with me. There is nothing better for a man than to eat and to drink and to tell himself that his labor is good. This also I have seen that is from the hand of God. It is God's will for his children to get the most out of life his way. But the enjoyment of life cannot be found in anything external. Okay? You can have all the money and all the fame and all the power and all the popularity that Solomon had and still wind up empty and miserable. Life cannot be found in those things. It cannot be found in our work. It cannot be found in our parties. It cannot even be found in people. It can only be found in the right relationship with God. All good things must be received and understood as coming from the hand of God. When they're used properly and we have the right perspective, we find joy. When he says in verse 24, he says that, that nothing is better for a man than to eat and to drink and to tell himself that his labor is good. That word tell himself should, could be translated make his soul see. This is not make-believe. He's not saying just, just close your eyes and make believe. Tell yourself it's all good. He says your soul needs to see something. Your heart needs to really see something that, it's so, that normally it misses. Naturally we miss. But there's something here that he wants us to see. Tell your soul to take a good look. Adjust your perspective. I want you to note that God wants us to enjoy here the simple things of life. Would you notice these verses? He says, look, there's nothing better than to eat and to drink and to tell oneself that his labor is good. This is from the hand of God. Notice, it doesn't matter how wealthy you are, how powerful you are, how much you have. The very simple things of life are gifts from God to enjoy. A good meal, a good fellowship, good friendships, the joy of a family. The simple things that the poor can enjoy as well as the rich, these are gifts from the hand of God. But we have to see them as from the hand of God. And so he moves on to verse 25. For who can eat and who can have enjoyment without him? Okay, here it is. Here, now he's moving in the right direction. Solomon has chased everything in life, much as many of you have and much as most of the world has. He's chased after everything in life to find happiness, to find joy. And everything left him empty. And then he begins to realize that you can eat, that for who can eat and drink with, and can have enjoyment without him, without that vital connection with God. Verse 26 For to a person who is good in his sight, he is given wisdom and knowledge and joy, while to the sinner he is given the task of gathering and collecting, so that he may give it to the one who is good in God's sight. This to his vanity 
and striving after the wind. See, here's the second key. You cannot find lasting purpose in life apart from God. The enjoyment of life is a gift from God. And you cannot find enjoyment in life apart from God. Those are the two keys that will be emphasized going throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. This Richard DeHaan in his commentary on Ecclesiastes says this, this book is in the Bible to make our mouths dry, our stomachs empty, and our hearts hungry for something more than what is to be found in this temporary existence under the sun. I think he's right. So are you tired of wandering around with no purpose in life? Are you confused by, about the meaning in life? Are you overwhelmed by the circumstances of life? If so, you need something more. Something you will never discover on your own. That's the message. You need a gift from God. Now, if you're not a Christian, you need a gift, the gift of eternal life. You need to know that you are hopelessly lost in your sin. And Ecclesiastes pushes you there. That you're hopelessly lost in your sins. You, have, you can find no life in yourself. And you need the forgiveness that only God can pro provide in Jesus Christ. Ecclesiastes is really pre-evangelism. It is meant to drive us to Christ. To God. You, you may need the gift of enjoyment of life if you're a Christian. You're a Christian, you know Christ, you've been saved, but you need another gift perhaps today. You need the gift of the enjoyment of life. You're going through the Christian life pretty much like Solomon's going through life. Pretty miserable, pretty much in your rut, uh, not seeing the purpose or meaning, chasing after this success or that, that job or that move or whatever. If only I could leave Illinois. That's what a lot of people say. If only I could go to another state, life would be so wonderful until you got there and was there for a couple months. And you begin to realize that life stayed with you. You left Illinois, but you got another set of issues and you're still you. And it didn't solve the problem whatsoever. You need a gift, the gift of enjoyment and a life lived in faith and obedience to God. Both are gifts from God. The gift of eternal life, the gift of enjoyment in life. The first step in obtaining these gifts is to recognize our need. That's what Ecclesiastes does. It shows us our need. And then it drives us to the only answer for those needs. And, that, and it's going to drive us to Colossians chapter 3 for just a moment. If you turn over there, Colossians chapter 3 gives the answer Solomon so desperately needed. Ecclesiastes is trying to drive us, Christian or non-Christian, to the conclusion that Paul gives us in the inspired text of Colossians chapter 3. And here's what he says. And notice the vast different perspective and understanding and life lived between what Solomon was living out and what God wants us to live. Colossians 3 in this wonderful passage Therefore, if you've been raised up with Christ, so he's talking about the believer, if you know Christ, if you don't know Christ, first you need to know Christ. Keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Solomon was seeking life down here on this planet under the sun. 
Solomon says, or David, or Paul says through the inspiration of the Spirit, keep seeking the things which are above the sun, above this planet, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things that are on the earth. Solomon did just the opposite. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be, be revealed with him in glory. When Christ, who is our life. Do you see the contrast? Ecclesiastes drives us to the place of desperation. And if you've lived any time at all, and sometimes our young people are facing this even more than maybe the older people. They, they've come to the end of themselves, and suicide is out. Uh, the statistics are crazy among young people. Depression among young people are crazy. They're, they've lived life maybe faster than their previous generations, and they've, they've gone through all these things very rapidly, and they've tried so many things, and they're coming up empty. Even in, in good pursuits, they're coming up empty. And Ecclesiastes is here to tell us, yes, that's exactly right. Those pursuits will never make you happy. Your successes will never make you happy. Where should we go? What should be our perspective? What should be our life? Colossians tells us, set your mind on things above where Christ is. Christ who is our life. So what is our life? Is, is our life the pursuits that we're doing here? There's nothing wrong with some of those pursuits. God has put us on this planet to do things, but our true life is found in Him. Notice the perspective change. If our, if our thoughts are like Solomon's, and it's all about this, and what's here, and pursuing all of this, then we're going to come to the end of their, our day and say that life is miserable, is vanity. If instead we look beyond this, and see Christ who is our life, then everything changes with that perspective and that choice. Paul Tripp said in one of his books, our lives cannot be found outside of our relationship to the Lord. So, if I'm seeking life outside of the one who is life, I'm effectively committing spiritual suicide. Let me repeat that. Our lives cannot be found outside of our relationships to the Lord. So, if we're seeking life outside of the one who is life, I am effectively committing spiritual suicide. And he's correct. So Ecclesiastes, while it's very depressing in places, is a book that drives us to what is truly life. And we'll be seeing that together time again in the next few weeks. Pray with me. Father, we all look at our lives and we recognize our, our limitations. We recognize the meaningless of, of life many times. And Lord... Uh, Sometimes you have to drive us to a place where we recognize just how hopeless we are without you. And Ecclesiastes does a lot of that work for us. So I pray, Lord, this is helpful as we go through it. But thank you that we're not stuck in this uh, merry-go-round of life that Solomon talks about, but that we have life in Christ who is our life as we seek to set our mind on things that are above. And we pray, Father, that that will be the great takeaway from our time together this morning. I pray in Christ's name. Amen.